Amen. All right. Do you get why we say, when we say we're going to make disciples and plant churches, do you get like why we say that with excitement and confidence? There's an embarrassment of riches at Hope Church. Were you blessed by these people leading? Now, some of them are leading on a regular basis, but Eduardo, to jump up on the mic, listen, that was fantastic. You don't realize how blessed you are. Further, uh, is anybody else struggling not to affect a Venezuelan accent? Gosh, that's winsome. Oh, my gosh. Well done, buddy. All right. Well, listen, my name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. Today, we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 11. Turner, tap your way there. If not, uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'll gift you one on the way out. It's very important that you have your own copy, that you can spend some time through the week thinking about these things, looking at these things, going to our source documents. Is what they're saying what they actually believe? Is this what Jesus said? Today, we're going to start a new series. Now, Over the course of this year, I've got really big aspirations, but it begins with creation. It begins with an understanding of where we all come from, what our identity, our being is grounded in. And if you don't go back to first things and get them right, then none of the things that follow ever actually work well. So that's what we're doing. We're going back to first things. But to get it, I I want you to see a little bit of the scope of what we're warring against. See, culturally, we have a wild and wrong understanding of the words dependence and independence. Now, we have a history as a nation with the word independence is very strong, it's very interesting, it's very positive in some ways. But the Christian has a foundational conviction that we are dependent rather than independent. Here's what I mean by that. Now, uh, I don't know if anybody else has seen this movie, Independence Day, came out in 1996. Some of you weren't even thought of. Don't tell me about it afterward. But it was a big deal when I was in high school. And like you watch the TBS version, I'm not telling you to go home and watch it. I don't know what content is in there. Please, you know, don't show your kids and say, hey, the pastor said we should watch this. It's a movie about aliens attacking Earth. So, you know, it's got some scary stuff. But in the movie, there's a point towards the end where Bill Pullman, and this must be the most incredible point in his whole career because you don't even know who he is. But this actor, Bill Pullman, who is playing the president, gets up onto like a military truck out on a tarmac, and he says to all these pilots, and there are all kinds of people, some of them are military pilots, but some of them are just guys, uh, crop duster guys that that ride little, uh, you know, biplanes or whatever, one of those being Dennis Quaid, this was back before he was, uh, well, maybe he was as creepy, but we didn't know it, you know, so you're cheering for Dennis Quaid, uh, again, to set the stage, And, and Bill Pullman gets up onto this military truck, and he starts to tell these guys he has his big speech moment. And it's before we go to fight the aliens. And they're joining up with an an armada of aircraft from all over the world to go and attack the aliens all at the same time. And it doesn't look good. He's making a speech to rally the troops. And if you haven't seen it, oh my gosh, watch it on YouTube. It'll give you chill bumps. But he goes through, and as he gets towards the end, he talks about how they're not just fighting for their independence, but they're fighting for their existence we're fighting against annihilation. And when he, he starts quoting the Invictus stuff, he said, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. 
We're going to survive. Today we celebrate our Independence Day. And they all, whoo, and then again, it just zeroes in on Dennis Quaid like, yeah, and America's supposed to feel for Dennis Quaid. But the moment of the Independence Day quote there stirs us. And it stirs you because you have this like righteous indignation against like a false authority. Amen. Yeah. But it also stirs us because your soul, one of the things the scripture says about it, has a grit level fight against authority. Starts off with disobedience to parents. Then it becomes to teachers. Then it becomes to bosses or governments. Then it becomes what? And in a movie like Independence Day, you have this sort of like all-powerful force coming down from the heavens. And it's a wicked thing, and we're going to fight against it. And it, it, you know, the story, yeah, like if aliens ever come, you know, let's do it. But I think part of what it, it stirs in us is that sort of nascent rebellion, that internal part of us that is always wanting to rebel and rebel and rebel. And so you have these smaller authorities that you rebel against, but really, you're looking higher. The scriptures are very clear that one of the most damning thoughts we can have is our non-dependence on God. If I keep saying independence, you're going to think I'm talking all like politics and history. I'm not. I'm talking about the way you relate to God. Am I foundationally dependent on God? Or am I foundationally independent with God as a reference point, God as an advisor, or God as an enemy? It may seem constraining, but if you understand the Christian understanding of who we are and where we come from, then you'll have Paul's reaction in Romans 11. Because he doesn't finish this understanding of God and his complete mastery over us in this sort of humble mumble of a slave, but in the wild, electric, triumphant joy of being one of God's followers. Here's what it says. Romans 11, it's the last part of the chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And now he's quoting. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, that doxology, that word doxology just means praise or study of praise or whatever. But it, we use it to, to grab some of these moments in Scripture that are so sort of stand up from the rest of Scripture where we have all this doctrine and all this teaching and all this beauty. But every now and again, you have these eruptions of praise. It's like the Psalms have found their way into the New Testament. These moments of praise, and that's what Paul has. And this moment of praise in Romans 11 is very strategically placed. 
And if you look at the book of Romans, it's a lengthy book. It's like 16 chapters. But the first eight chapters and then some other stuff in 9, 10, and 11. But the first 11 chapters are all about how God has saved us. Why we needed to be saved, who God is, how he's gone about this salvation, some of the things that come from this idea of salvation and the eruption of blessing that comes from being his, such that he finishes all of these thoughts in Romans 11, 33 to 36 with this mountain of praise, this moment, Jacob's ladder kind of moment where heaven just opens up. He's reflecting on what we call the gospel. Romans 3 does it so perfectly because at that point he's already described our sin and he's starting to tell us what God's done about it. But Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against him. We've tried to disentangle ourselves from him and his rule. But though we have sinned, though we have fallen short of the glory of God, we can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 24 of chapter 3. He's saying that though we've attempted to disentangle ourselves from life itself, by his grace through Christ, he has reattached. If you will believe, if you will receive, he has come again to be your Lord and Savior. And he did it all on his own. It's not something that you work for or attain. It says in verse 25, God put this Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood, means a a person who would die for you, who would take your punishment on himself, that you might receive that through faith. It's to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. You can again be dependent on him. Your life is no longer just hiding as long as you can until eventually he gets you. That's why I want us to see, if if you can start to see why that word dependent is a good thing. If you can start to see why my dependence on him allows me to be a world changer for everything else. You can see where the praise comes from. So that in verse 33 of Romans 11, he starts with the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. I've always had a problem getting to what it means that God has never begun. That all of creation, all of the universe, that there's an end to it somehow and all of it is held by this God. I don't know if anybody else watched a lot of cartoons growing up, but there's a time in cartoons where they break the fourth wall, sort of, where Bugs Bunny, like, meets the cartoonist, where he kind of, like, walks out of the cartoon, or, like, they're running, and they're running so fast that the cartoon pages can't keep up, and eventually, and it rips, and what's behind the cartoon is the drawing board of the animator. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Google it, maybe. Uh, but, but the idea is that there's something behind the cartoon. It's like they get out of the world and they see the face of God, you know, as the like, cartoonist with his pencil or whatever. But that they see the end of where their whole world is. And behind it is that, like, board with all the circles and, and diagrams and stuff. That's the artist board. And every time I'm reading through Scripture and I see stuff like this, that's what I do in my head. God, who is beyond all, God, who is the source of all. And I start trying to understand what that means or conceptualize it in my head. 
Immediately, I hear the ripping sound of paper so that Bugs Bunny is going through the cartoon because that's what's happening in my mind. I can't get there. Beyond the universe, in my head. And then I see the artist board because that's all I can get to. I can't understand it. And that's what he's saying. Of course you can't. This is God who in his riches of wisdom and knowledge has in an unsearchable way, an inscrutable way, built everything, made everything, and it is beyond us. And from that conclusion, we get 34 and 35. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, there's a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a famous British pastor who did a lot of preaching on Romans. And he calls these verses divine ridicule. Now, I hope that that's true. I, I think it's true. It makes sense to me. But I hope that God makes fun of us. I do that with my children, and I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one. That God would laugh at us, at the presumption that we could teach him something, be his counselor. That we could give him something to repay him. Don't go past this humbling moment, because what he's doing here is not just telling you something that's true. He's telling you something that's good. Dependence is good, leading to praise. How? Well, he says first, who has known his mind? Who's been his counselor? And you say, okay, yeah, God's smarter, duh. But take time to let this sink in, because if you're Sean, Ellen's husband, you just lost your wife. You need to know this. You need to have a foundation for Romans 8.28. See, people are going to throw this verse at Sean a lot. It says in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Sean, your wife's dead. All things work together for good. That verse becomes meaningless unless God is wiser than us. You will never convince Sean that it was good. Don't try. We can't get there. Our brains can't do that math. Yes, we can look to the redemption. Yes, we can say that Ellen is now with Christ and we're so happy for Ellen. But to call death good? Ah, no. What we say is that the wisdom of God is so far beyond our wisdom that this chess master can take any move that the enemy makes and turn it to good. Oh, don't take my bishop. Well, you're going to take my bishop? Uh, you take my bishop and you've lost. Oh, he took my bishop. And it looked like a good move. He thought it was a good move. He thought he hurt me. But what he really did was he just sealed his fate. He just showed that much more the glory of this chess master. You can't know that unless you know that he's wise beyond our wisdom. I'm not going to be able to say this is why it's good. But I can say that God does know. It seems cruel, but it, it's not. If you get to the end of Job, this is a book in the Old Testament where this guy endures unimaginable suffering. 
And then you have chapters and chapters of him processing what happened until eventually you have a couple of chapters of God responding to Job. And the way he responds is not to explain it. And the way he responds is not to coddle. The way he responds is to say, I'm God. You have had no understanding of everything going around you all the time. Who are you that you would instruct me? And it seems cruel. But what Job lands on is dependence. He lands on a firm foundation. He's okay. Yes, he's weeping. Yes, he's mourning. No, he'll never be the same. But he's okay. But he praises. That's what you can get to if God is in control. No, we're not his counselor. Yes, he is all wise. That dependence leads to praise. Who has given him a gift? Think about the sacrifice that took place in the Old Testament. Now, our sacrifice of praise is, you know, we're up here and we're doing stuff. And maybe through the week you're trying to be obedient to God and help move the church forward. Great. In the Old Testament, though, they would have a very visual moment where they go to God to sacrifice for him, to give a gift to him. And yet, think about what they're actually doing. Imagine that sacrifice. The guy brings up the animal. The priest is standing there. The altar's right there. They kill the animal. This very expensive animal that he's giving to God. But that's not how the Bible sees it. The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The cattle is his. Of course, the priest and the altar are his. They're his idea. The fire, that's his. He invented it. The breath that man uses to repent of his sin before God is God's gift. It is absolutely the equivalent of my child handing me a gift that Rachel, my wife, picked out for me using my money. The kid didn't come up with the idea, didn't come up with the gift, didn't come up with the money, didn't come up with anything. They just sort of passively stood there while the thing was put in the hand, and then they walked over to Dad and... (laughs) Oh, wow, thank you so much. And I'm blown away because I love them. But I'd be foolish to think I'm getting wealthier. Who has given him a gift? And then Paul kind of puts it in this very comprehensive way in verse 36 where he says, For from him and through him and to him are All things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Hear it. Not only is he saying all things, which is comprehensive, he's saying about where we come from, where we're going to, and everything that's going on right now. You can see it. He's got God's arm on one side, God's arm on the other side, and God's presence right now over all things. It says what? All things are from him. Now, the doctrine of creation in Christianity is not a doctrine of of reassembly, as though things are just out there and God puts them together and he presents them to us. This is hard to understand, but what we're saying is that God's creation is, and we're going to use Latin to make it real official, ex nihilo, from nothing. He speaks, and now there is something. If you create Hey, fantastic. But what you're really doing is rearranging. 
You stare at a blank Word document and the cursor's just blinking at you and there's just nothing there and it's the scariest thing in the world and it's a scary thing for me every Monday morning when I'm staring at that just blinking thing and I have to delete last week's sermon and, oh, okay, i got to come up with a new one. And it feels like I'm creating ex nihilo. No, of course I'm not. I take God's scriptures, I think God's thoughts as well as I can, and then I use God's words to reiterate to you, God's people, God's truths. There's no creation. The same thing, you're an artist. Well, fantastic. Take his brush and his paint to recreate some aspect of his creation. (laughs) Oh, great job. You are very creative. I'm impressed. But you're not ex nihilo. He is. Dependence. 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 If I, if I give up this idea that I'm going to actually do something and this thing is going to stand and God's going to honor me for it, He's going to be indebted to me for it, if I just give that up, then I've finally found a way to start attacking my pride and start facilitating, start growing in humility. It says, from Him are all things, but it also says, through Him are all things. That means that He is our active sustainer. Here's what I mean by that. Psalm 104 says, Lord, when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Does that describe God taking the earth, spinning it, and then walking away? That describes him holding us in existence. It says in Hebrews 1.3, it talks about Christ in the same way. Again, our understanding of the Trinity. But he says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's the idea that he is continuing to sustain it. Here's what I want you to see about that. If God wants to kill a monster... He does not have to actively destroy that monster. He doesn't have to try and crunch it and use his strength to attack it, though he could. If he wants to kill it, all he has to do is stop holding it. You have to use his breath to curse his name. This isn't even a good illustration because it's still here. I can't unmake it somehow. But what I'm saying is if he wants you gone, all he does is stop sustaining you. Do you take a second to realize what that means? Because all of our culture is built on hiding that fact from you. You are his. Through him, you're existing this moment. From him you have come and to him you are going. When he talks about this returning to him. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way. All things are subjected to him. Then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. There will be a day when you will be before his face. Now C.S. Lewis, love him. Chronicles of Narnia, love them. If you get a chance to read them, read them yourself, read them to your kids. You don't have kids, great, read them. They're way better when you're an adult than they are when you're a kid. But there's this picture, the last picture in the whole series, or one of, 
all the creation in, in Narnia, this little fictional world, has to be presented before God. And it doesn't have, the way he pictures it, it's not the like courtroom picture that a lot of us have of the book being opened and you're being checked and you're standing behind, you know, like this wooden fence post or whatever that they have in a courthouse and you're hoping, you know, maybe you won't get guilty. What he has instead is this picture of the people or all the little creatures in Narnia and they stand before the face of Aslan. They just are presented before the face of God. And they either fall down and worship or they scream and run. They're either taken into his presence forever or they're separated from him forever. Dependence will lead to praise. Are you able to see this God from, through, and to? Not, a, not needing any of your counsel or any of your gifts. Are you able to see this God and fall down in praise? This is the kind of God who wants all of you because he's already got all of you. He just wants to remove that lie that anything that you can think or do or want would somehow create your own little world with your own little kingdom where you are king. One day you're going you're gonna to be before him. And it's not like you can exist without him. Listen, when Paul first meets Jesus, you know, this guy, he's writing Romans, and you think this guy's like a saint among saints. He probably was following Jesus around when Jesus came. No. He actually hated Jesus, and he hated all of his followers, and he was one of the ones killing Christians when they first started getting killed which was like immediately, by the way. And yet, Jesus meets him, and the glory of who God is in Christ overwhelms Paul. He realizes he's unmade. That trying to work against that God is trying to break his very being in half. And Jesus says as much to him. In Acts 26, Paul's telling the story about what happened when he met Jesus, and he says, We fell to the ground... And I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. He's saying the goad is this stick that you use to move sheep around with. He's saying, why are you kicking against creation itself, against who you are? If you will just go where I am leading you, if you will just submit to who I am, I will give you joy unspeakable. And he did, which is why Romans 11 exists. So, where do you stand before this God? Are you actually able to say, from him and through him and to him are all of my things? Everything I am, everything I want, everything I love, everything I have is his. Are you willing to come through Christ and have him be your Lord? That's what we're going to continue thinking about, continue studying, continuing to find the joy in over the next several weeks. And I hope you'll stay with us. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we've talked about deep things and we've talked about hard things. But we've also talked about unbelievably good things. Lord, will you please 
write these truths on our hearts. Help us this week to see how many places our culture fights against this narrative of our dependence on you. Lord, let us see that when we bend the knee before you, we're not doing some grand act of contrition. We're bending the knee before the one who made our knees. Lord, let us live in accordance with the way you have made us to be, that we might feel the joy that you've built for all of your creatures. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray. Amen.